For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about one of the good things that came out of the Republicans' failure to repeal and replace Obamacare last week. And that's the growing talk about creating a single-payer system, something like Medicare for All. John Nichols will report. Also, Donald Trump is putting more generals in power. He just made a general his chief of staff at the White House. He has a general heading the Defense Department, which is supposed to be under civilian control, and another general as his national security advisor. That reminds us of our conversation with Rosa Brooks about how the military became everything. She worked at the Pentagon. Now she's a law professor at Georgetown University. We'll speak with her later in the show. First up, we're six months into the Trump era, and how are you feeling about the world today? Katha Pollitt has been asking around. She joins us now to tell us what she discovered. Of course, Katha is a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. Her most recent book is Pro Reclaiming Abortion Rights. It's out now in paperback. We reached her today in New York City. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. How are you? I'm pretty good. I want to start with you, though. How are you feeling about politics and life these days? Oh, my God. Every day is worse than the day before. (laughs) I used to go for a long time without reading the New York Post. And every time I would be lured in by some scandalous headline, I'd buy the paper, which only cost 25 cents. I would think, oh, my God, it's even worse than before. And I would think, okay, they're going to reach bottom sometimes. But they never did. They <laughs> and this is, the Trump administration is like that. It's just never, it never gets better. Well, I think among people who care about politics, the, the realistic uh, stance is depression mixed with anxiety, or maybe it's anxiety mixed with depression. Is that the way things are at your house? Well, we have a rule that we can't, talk about Trump before eight in the morning (laughs) or after 10 at night, because after we were talking about him so much, we couldn't sleep. And, (laughs) and, and and most days we do keep to that. Although Stephen says we do not actually, well, the illusion that we're cutting back. At my house, we have some rules, too. Uh, One of my rules is a day without Trump every week. No talking about Trump, no reading about Trump, no tweeting about Trump. It's really hard to do, but it's it's my goal. Another rule at our house is at dinner with friends, no talk about Trump is allowed for the first one hour. And of course, many of our friends violate this rule. But if if that doesn't work, if somebody does start talking about Trump in the first hour, the, the, the plan B of this rule is that after you talk about Trump, you have to talk about something else for one hour minimum. What do you think of those oh. rules? Well, I think I would just deprive them of dessert. (laughs) 
You live in New York City. I live in L.A. These are two of the least Republican places on earth. It's very hard to find Trump supporters in, in New York City or in L.A., although I do have some relatives in L.A. who are Republicans. I don't think they're that enthusiastic about Trump. You know, they just want tax cuts and less government regulation on business. Have you tried to talk to any Trump supporters? Well, yes, I have. You know, I, people are always saying you have to get out of your bubble. We, those of us who live in places like the Upper West Side or Los Angeles. So I try to do that a little bit. Uh, so last weekend, I had a long talk with a Trump supporter in upstate New York, where I happen to be visiting friends. And this guy is a friend of a friend. Uh, he's extremely conservative. And the thing that's interesting, and I think this must be so often the case, he is a perfectly lovely guy, and he just has his own facts. So in his world... There are plenty of jobs, but people won't take them because it's so easy to get, you know, a full panoply of government benefits and live well. Uh, 30 to 40 percent of people on Medicaid are defrauding the government and high taxes and regulations have ruined upstate New York. And, you know, I didn't tell him since he was in upstate New York, New York's upstate New York has been in the process of being ruined for over 100 years. Yes. I don't think government regulations have a whole lot to do with that. Um, so he thinks the free market would solve all our problems. Supply and demand is a beautiful thing, he said. So mostly I just listen and ask questions, and it may surprise some of your listeners that I can actually do this. <laughs> okay. Well, we, we salute you. Now, for this new column of yours, you set out to learn how other people, people like us, are dealing with life in the age of Trump. And uh, you employed the most advanced tools of the science of public opinion. Is that correct? Yes, I talked to my friends. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I talked to my friends. I put up something on Facebook. So, okay, my, my scientific findings are that the chief effects are distractibility, loss of focus, anxiety, depression, despair, anger, some people are drinking more, others are drinking less. Some people have gone into therapy and a therapist who responded said, oh, this is what my patients all want to talk about. Mm. And uh, one person, Emily, Emily Jane Goodman, who is a retired Supreme Court Justice of the state of New York, said, she said something so sweet. She said, I feel like I'm back in law school. Every day brings a new constitutional question to ponder, analyze, and discuss. <laughs> That's a healthy uh, response. Yeah helps if you can just see this all as an educational opportunity. Well, I, I tell people to try to make them feel better, friends of mine. I say every week is a bad week for Trump. And it seems to me that should make us feel better. But a very smart friend of mine replied, and every week is also a bad week for us. Yes, this is true. And then Trump did something so brilliant, which is that he made Pence his vice president. So after you have had all your optimistic, cheery thoughts about, ooh, impeachment, ooh, the 25th Amendment, ooh, maybe he'll just go away somehow, you think, right. And then we get Mike Pence, who won't even have dinner with a woman who isn't his wife and who is a total stone reactionary theocrat. But if Pence uh, assumed the presidential seat in the White House, the media would be so happy because he has gravitas. Things would be calm. He would have relations with Congress. Um, he wouldn't be a paranoid lunatic about to blow up the world. <laughs> and so it really has this feeling like, well, what is going to happen? Can we last four years? Yeah. 42 months. 42 months. My God. It seems like forever. 
So in your scientific study of how people are doing in the Trump era, I wonder if you found there's a difference between men and women in how they're dealing with life under Trump. Well, this is very tentative. Um, my researchers are still performing experiments to just decide whether this is in fact the case. But, okay. um, but it, it is true that there were a number of people who said, I feel energized. I feel, you know, I was born to fight this. I'm a journalist and there are just more stories that I can cover. I just feel hugely uh, full of spirit and I leap out of bed every morning. Those people were all men. Uh-huh. Huh. And they were. They were just all men. It's really kind. Of, and, and there were men who were depressed and anxious and women who were depressed and anxious, but the energized people were all were all men. And so were the people who felt some sense of optimism, like uh, Mark Oppenheimer, who is a very good journalist who writes a lot about religion. He wrote, I take a renewed sense of urgency to all my work now. The U.S. may have a terrible executive branch, but my hometown of New Haven doesn't. Whenever I worry that freedom could be corroded here the way they have been in Hungary or Poland, I think, wait, would the people on my block or on my street allow that? I don't think they would. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay, New Haven. <laughs> but then uh, a, a Washington-based journalist wrote, so Washington may already be a lost cause, I wrote, because here's a D.C.-based journalist who said, watching so many people I know more from, obviously I can't support Trump, too. Of course I'll help Trump confirm birthers to the federal bench, has rolled down my friend list. Mm. There are friends I have not spoken to since November 8th, and never will speak to again. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it may be that journalists are a special group. The journalists that I know, female and male alike, mostly say this is a great time to be a journalist, and this is going to a golden age of journalism. We're you know we're back to the Watergate era where somebody's going to win a Pulitzer Prize. It's an exciting time to be a journalist. I think they're in a special uh, a special category where they really do have career opportunities and work challenges that ordinary people don't have. I do think that that's a very interesting point. Now, I would say that the people I knew who were the most optimistic. It were people who were who were being activists. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who really weren't doing an, uh, very much with their liberal politics until Trump got elected. And that's when you saw the Women's March and all the things that came out of that, the huddle, and then people going, a lot of those people migrated into indivisible. Yeah. So I, I think when people feel that there are actions they can take to shape their world, there's something very upcheering about that. When they stay on Twitter and just attack their people who agree with them 95% of the time all day long, that I think is very depleting. So I think, uh, I think we are moving towards some wisdom that you can provide to help us face the coming months and maybe years with Trump. Do you have any wisdom that you can offer us in conclusion? So I am taking a pledge to shun stupid fights with people I agree with politically 95% of the time. This will be a great challenge for me. <laughs> I might need the Dalai Lama's help for that. Uh, but I want to just, uh, I close my column with a quote from a wonderful man, uh, University of Chicago policy wonk, um, 
health policy maven, Harold Pollack. And he said, we need to support each other. We need to be kind and decent to each other, too, across many personal and political divides. We are going to defeat Trump if he doesn't defeat himself first. But this race is not a sprint. It's a long distance run. Katha Pollitt, read her new column on surviving another year or two under Trump at thenation.com. Katha, thank you for your wisdom today. Thank you so much for having me, John. The Senate Republicans' failure to repeal Obamacare has opened the door to rethinking health insurance in America, including some serious talk about creating a single-payer Medicare-for-all system. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent and author of the new book, Horseman of the Trumpocalypse, A Field Guide to the Most Dangerous People in America. We reached him today in Madison. John, welcome back. It's great to be with you, John. And uh, I have to warn you up front, having examined the record and the statements of uh, our Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tom Price. Yes. I'm not sure he's going to be an advocate for single payer. Okay. Well, you know, the Senate Republicans may try again. Right now, it looks like they're giving up for the rest of the year. But in the meantime, it seems like there's some significant new support for creating a single payer system more than ever before. Al Gore has endorsed single payer. Jimmy Carter endorsed single payer last week. Even Chuck Schumer Mm -hmm. says single payer is, quote, on the table. What do you make of all of this movement? It's huge, and it's incredibly significant. Single-payer has not had this much support in the Democratic Party and in the body politic more broadly since Harry Truman. I, I emphasize that point because, you know, Harry Truman came close to pulling this thing off. Single-payer, well presented as a national health care plan that covers everyone, is an incredibly potent political issue. It's one of the two critical issues that helped Truman to win that quote-unquote surprise victory back in 1948. The other one was civil rights. And so people need to understand that the problem in the single-payer fight over the last many years has not been Republican opposition. It has been Democratic caution. Uh Many Democrats have always supported single-payer, but there's at the leadership level, There's been a a tremendous resistance. You mentioned Al Gore. I can tell you right now, if Al Gore had run the right campaign on single payer in 2000, he would have gotten the votes he needed to become president of the United States. He actually won the race, but he didn't get enough to let the Supreme Court make him him be president. I really want to emphasize what's happening here is a profound political shift. Gore, of course, has moved. You're right about Carter saying we'll get there eventually or inevitably. But what's really significant is Elizabeth Warren saying Democrats must campaign on this issue in 2018 and 2020. And even more significant, I would suggest, is Kirsten Gillibrand, a woman who, frankly, uh, has turned out to be an incredibly effective senator during this uh, early Trump presidency, the most oppositional senator as regards cabinet picks, but then taking this issue up. And why that's important? is A, she's right to take it up, but B, she's someone that a lot of people suggest is interested in running for president. And what a, what a profound step that is. We have a, someone that's somewhat identified as more of a centrist Democrat, 
looking at the presidential prospects, looking at the future and saying, I got to get on the right side of single payer. There are steps on the way to single payer that some of our friends in Washington have been talking about. For example, lowering the Medicare eligibility age to 55 and or allowing people to buy into Medicare before they are eligible. Are these important steps on the way or are these uh, unnecessary uh, distractions? No, they're important steps on the way. Look, one thing that we have to understand is that single payer is advancing, at least in part because people have started to refer to it as Medicare for all. Yes. Medicare is a very, very popular program and it becomes understandable If Medicare is working for elderly Americans, why can't it work for all of us, right? Yeah. And so the expansion of it to people age 55, you know what? I'll tell you two reasons why that's a big deal. One, those are people who, 55 and up, who definitely need health care, but are really getting battered by the current system. Many of those, especially in, in some key states, were folks who really weren't huge fans of Donald Trump, but were totally felt totally embattled because of loss of jobs, things of that nature, threat of jobs. And to provide health care assurance to that group is politically significant. It is structurally wise and it is morally right. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of reasons why it's a step that once you put it on the table, I think has tremendous potential to advance. I would caution about the other side of it though, or the, the, part of saying allowing people to buy in to Medicare, I'd be very cautious in that because you don't want to create a circumstance where in any sense, Medicare becomes non-universal or becomes elite, Yeah. right? You want to, you want to make sure that Medicare is always a universal program, everybody in, nobody out. And the critical thing on that is that if you start getting into, you know, kind of means testing and and different measures of how you get in, or if you start saying, well, if you're rich enough, you can buy in, that's a dangerous game. It may have potential, but it should be very, very carefully examined by progressives. We'd be cautious about anything that undermines what is really a crown jewel program. And in a sense, I'm much more comfortable with the idea of saying, if somebody is 55 or older, or frankly, I'd say if somebody's any age, you know, at this point, if they, if they cannot access health care for any of a variety of reasons, maybe age, maybe uh, pre-existing condition, maybe all sorts of other things, if we can start a, a process by which they can get into Medicare just simply by their humanity, not by their ability to pay, that's a good thing. So Medicare for all or something like it should be a campaign issue for the Democrats in 2018, should be a leading issue in 2020 for the Democratic presidential candidate. In the meantime, we still have Obamacare. Obamacare has these problems, which we've heard so much about. There are many ways that Trump could sabotage and undermine uh, Obamacare. In the meantime, there's been this interesting proposal by a bipartisan group of Republicans and Democrats in the House while the House is in recess to help fix some of the problems with Obamacare as it exists this year. It's a couple of dozen Democrats, a couple of dozen Republicans. Uh, Let me just explain what their proposal is. They want to shore up 
the individual exchanges in the states where there are problems with federal money that would presumably go to the insurance companies. That's something the Democrats would like. And in exchange, the Democrats have agreed uh, in this proposal to scale back the employer mandate. Right now, if you're an employer, you have to provide health insurance for your employees if you employ more than 50 people. And if they work more than 30 hours a week, this proposal, the bipartisan House proposal, is to exclude a lot more businesses from those with 50 employees to those with up to 500 employees and to make the mandate apply only to employees working 40 hours. They also want to get rid of the sales tax on medical devices. The rest of Obamacare would remain unchanged under this new bipartisan uh, proposal. What do you think of this compromise? Is this a good idea? And of course, the most important question, is Paul Ryan going to let this see the light of day when the House comes back? Uh, to address you in Spanish, the answer to your first question is más o menos. And the answer to your second question is, uh, I think, I hope I'm not saying this wrong, nada. But here's the bottom line. There are elements of this proposal that may have some value. Why they have value is because Donald Trump really is uh, such an ignoramus as regards healthcare policy that there's every evidence that he is willing to steer uh, the country into crisis in order to to leverage um, the kinds of changes he wants. Um, this is madness, and it has the potential to throw millions of people into a disastrous circumstance. People could die because of bad health care policy. That's not a that's not theory. That's reality. And so, if there are band aid fixes that might get us through this year, even though it might benefit some folks we you know politically and others or may you know fall into some weird zone uh yeah we we can be supportive of some of them but we should be very very cautious about paying the price for access to health care which is incredibly popular which voters desperately want by trading off giveaways to multinational corporations to the wealthy and so this shouldn't be advanced cautiously. It should be advanced with a lot of knowledge and a lot of thinking about what uh, might come of this. And uh, the counsel I would give is that it is, you know, on any one of these issues, John, and any one of these approaches, there are so many tripwires that uh, no proposal that you are hearing about now will get to a vote as is. Nothing, not even a compromise proposal, not one that's got Democrats and Republicans on it, because first off, there will be the pressures from the interest groups within Congress, the Freedom Caucus on one side, some of the moderate Republicans on others, as well as, you know, Democrats coming from different directions. Additionally, then it's got to go through the Senate. And then I promise you, it will end up back in a conference committee. And here's where we have to be very scared, because it is in a conference committee. You know, if we get some compromise proposal that actually passes the House and Senate and they get into a conference committee, it is there where they will try to attack Medicaid. And I promise you, they will go after Medicaid uh, and it will potentially be one of the most dangerous and destructive things uh, that's been done. So be careful of the Trojan horse, I guess, is my counsel. <laughs> 
In the couple of minutes left here, I just want to ask about your new book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. Its pub date is later this month. Is Anthony Scaramucci one of the most dangerous people covered in your new book? You know, I didn't have time to uh, <laughs> write a Scaramucci chapter and get it in before he was out. But John Kelly, the new uh, chief of staff, is in the book. And it's a big deal that Kelly is the chief of staff because he is one of Donald Trump's most ardent enablers. Uh, and that's a very, very dangerous thing. I, I will say to you bluntly that um, Wright's Priebus, for all of his amazing faults and weaknesses, was a better chief of staff than John Kelly will be. It is embarrassing to see many of my friends in the media, many pundits saying, oh, it's great. John Kelly's there. He's this stand-up guy who's going to really run things great and blah, blah, blah. He, John Kelly has a distinguished record in the military, and it's, it's fine to honor that and, and good to honor you know, people who stood up and served and sacrificed for their country. But since he has been associated with the Trump presidency, he has repeatedly made apologies for Donald Trump's worst actions, sought to implement some of his worst actions as regards immigration, and also said things that were absolutely absurd and irresponsible in defense of Donald Trump. This guy is literally the exact wrong person to have in this chief of staff position because he is a respectable-seeming, relatively strong figure who tells the president what he wants to hear and then defends it in public. It's very similar to what's happened with General McMaster. And I am extremely concerned about this elevation of John Kelly. I don't think it's a good thing. And the book deals at great length with the evidence for why, why people should be concerned about Kelly. John Nichols, we're waiting for his new book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, A Field Guide to the Most Dangerous People in America. In the meantime, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Always great to have you on the show. It is always an honor to be with you. seems like the military is becoming everything in the Trump administration. He just made a general his chief of staff. He has another general running the Defense Department and yet another general as his national security advisor. That led us to recall our conversation with Rosa Brooks about how the military became everything. She's a law professor at Georgetown University and a senior fellow at New America and a columnist for Foreign Policy magazine. She's also worked as counselor to the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, and she's been a senior advisor to the State Department and a consultant for Human Rights Watch. Here in L.A., we remember her as a weekly op-ed columnist for the L.A. Times. And now she's written a book, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, Tales from the Pentagon. Rosa Brooks, welcome. Thanks, John. Good to be here. You worked at the Pentagon, the heart of darkness. You call it a, quote, vast bureaucratic death-dealing enterprise, close quote. You got an award for your work at the Pentagon. What exactly was your job there? What does this title mean? And what did you learn about the sense of purpose at that gigantic institution? Well, I don't know quite what I got the award for, <laughs> for being a 
a good employee and doing my job. But no, I, I had a I had one of those portfolios that portfolios that that evolved as I went along. I, I came in, uh, I was hired by Michelle Flournoy, who was the undersecretary for policy. And when I came in, no one had any idea what I should do. I was sort of the generalist in a in a building full of specialists. So I started out doing things ranging from writing her speeches and congressional testimony to gradually, because of my own background in, in human rights, um, sort of soaking up everything human rights related uh, that other people brought to us and, and eventually starting starting an office within the Pentagon that looked at human rights and rule of law and humanitarian policy issues. And one of the most fascinating things uh, in in your book is that you discover that the Pentagon is not just a death-dealing enterprise. It does a lot of other things. It does pretty much everything, in fact. Um, that was one of the most amazing <laughs> discoveries was that any issue you can think of, whether it's a public health issue, an economic development issue, you know, anything, someone in the Pentagon or the Defense Department is, is working on it. Uh, the Pentagon uh, was involved in planning programs designed to reduce sexual violence by Congolese military forces. It designs anti-trafficking programs in the Pacific, uh, soap operas for Iraqi audiences, um, micro-enterprise programs for Afghan women, uh, training parliamentarians and judges. You name it, somebody in the Pentagon is working on it. There's, there's sort of almost nothing that the U.S. military sort of doesn't have a, a, a toe or a finger in. Is there anything wrong with having the military help Afghan women? No, not in the abstract, not necessarily. I mean, I think that I think that what gets complicated, several several things start creating problems, right? One is that the military isn't necessarily any good at it. It's not necessarily the skills that military people are trained in, right? So sometimes they screw it up. It may not be their fault. They're doing their best to do something that they didn't necessarily ask to have handed to them as an assignment but they may still screw it up and that's not necessarily good. The other problem, I think it is, it's sort of part of this vicious circle where the more we ask the military to do, the more we flow resources and authorities over to the military, uh, which leaves less to go around for the State Department, USAID, and the traditional civilian foreign policy agencies, the less there is for them, the less they can do, their own capabilities dwindle, which means that they can't take on the tasks that we'd like them to take on, which means we give those tasks to the military, which means the cycle just repeats itself. So it's part of the sort of the gradual dismantling and uh, reducing to irrelevance of the civilian agencies. How do you explain the fact that the Pentagon has taken on so many of these tasks instead of the State Department? Part of it is that they're big and they're there. Um, they've got people, they've got money. It's, it's, it's frequently said, and it is true, that there are more members of military marching bands than there are foreign service officers uh, for the United States. And um, the military, it's like Walmart, right? It's, it's open 24-7. It can do things cheaply and efficiently. It may not do them in the best, most highest quality way, but it can do them cheaply and efficiently. Uh, the military can tell thousands upon thousands of people to go off to a very unpleasant place and work in difficult and dangerous conditions, and they can't say no, they'll go. Uh, there's no other part of the U.S. government that can do that, and that becomes really, really tempting for both the White House and Congress to constantly be saying, 
we want this to get done. There aren't enough people at the State Department, so military, you go figure it out. I believe there's also a difference in the budget of the Pentagon and the State Department. Just a little, just a little difference. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, the, the budget of the Defense Department uh, is uh, more than 10 times higher than the budget of the State Department. And it is amazing how difficult it is to change that. And one of the many mind-blowing things for me when I was at the Pentagon, every year, as you know, the, the administration submits its budgets to Congress and Congress sort of marks them up and sends them back. And so the Defense Department submits its budget request and it comes back and the Secretary of Defense writes a letter back to the relevant congressional committees after the budget markup. It's, it's referred to colloquially in the, in the Pentagon as the heartburn letter. It's sort of a letter of, you know, we asked for such and such and then this is what you gave us back and this is what I'm really unhappy about and want you to reconsider. And I would have assumed going into this process that it would mostly take the form of the Secretary of Defense saying, you know, we asked for 100x and you only gave us 80. We want 100. You gave us too little. Give us what we asked for. In fact, I remember in 2009 or 10, the letter had, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 bullet pointed items that the Secretary of Defense was really unhappy about. Uh, and almost all of them, literally like 12 or so out of 14, were not issues where he was saying, we asked for this and you gave us too little, but they were issues where he was saying, we told you we didn't want this money for this program, or we didn't want this weapon system. We don't want that base because it's useless. It's inefficient. It's, we don't need that money. We don't want that program. Take it away. And you're trying to ram it down our throats. <laughs> you know, you can't get rid of this stuff. Even when the secretary of defense is saying, we don't want it. Congress still wants to fund it. And, and, you know, this is the sad reality is that you know, every member of Congress has a military base or a defense contractor in their district. There are no factories manufacturing disaster relief experts or foreign foreign service officers in anybody's constituency. One of the big arguments of your book takes up the question of where we draw the line between war and peace. It was only a couple of decades ago that this wasn't even a question. You point out that today it's become much more problematic. I think that's right. I, I think that to oversimplify a little bit until until a few decades ago, when we thought about potential security threats to the United States, we, we thought in terms of foreign states and armed conflicts with foreign states militaries. And today, increasingly, just because of technological changes, globalization changes everybody is familiar with, individuals and small groups who may be totally disconnected from any state, who may be operating across borders, multiple different nationalities, have the ability to pose challenges and threats to states on a scale that we once would have associated only with states and their militaries. And as that happens, as we begin to have these sort of threats that don't look like traditional armed conflict, but they don't, they look on a scale that is so different from ordinary crime that they, they do seem like you can't just put them in that category. It really challenges our ability to make sense of, is this, are these threats part of war? Or are they part of something else? What's the right institution to deal with them? What's the right legal framework for dealing with them? And of course, the difference between war and peace is tremendously important in that in peacetime, if for, just for example, if you kill another human being, you'll be punished for committing a crime. In wartime, if you refuse to kill the enemy, you will be punished for a crime. 
Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. And, and, and so when we decide that we're going to look at, say, cyber threats through the framework of war, uh, rather than through the framework of crime or through a regulatory framework, once we decide we're going to look at it through a legal framework of war and armed conflict, well, then you get to do all kinds of things that you otherwise don't get to do up to and including responding to cyber attacks with actual military force, bombs, guns, etc. And when you're in the world of the law of armed conflict, the law tolerates much, much greater violence, coercion, secrecy, uh, lack of accountability than when you're in the ordinary peacetime legal world. And so the more we get these kind of murky in-between things from, you know, transnational terror networks of non-state actors to, to cyber threats and so forth, the more we put them in that war framework, the more we kind of disappear lots of activities into this uh, area where, where secrecy is tolerated and violence is tolerated with far fewer checks and balances. You're an expert on the law of war, and one of the most important parts of the law of war, accepted for a century, is the obligation to protect non-combatants. Your side is required not to attack civilians, to distinguish between civilians and military forces, and you have an, you have an obligation to protect non-combatants. Uh, where do we stand today on the ability to protect non-combatants? <laughs> it's getting harder and harder, in part because, you know, it's very easy to identify a combatant if they are kind enough to wear a military uniform and carry a little card that identifies their rank in a particular army. But but when you're when you're looking at threats like transnational terrorism, we no longer really have any coherent basis for deciding who counts as a civilian, who counts as a combatant, what counts as an armed conflict, what counts as something else, transnational organized crime, for instance, or crimes against humanity. You know, we, we basically have no idea. And I think what has been happening since since September 11, for 15 years now in this country, has been that we have tended, when in doubt, to decide that there's an armed conflict and that the people who we don't like or who we think are doing something bad and nefarious to call them combatants. Once we do that, uh, we can kill them without due process, without any judicial review, without necessarily acknowledging our role in it. And that's something, obviously, that legally speaking, both from a, an international law perspective and an American law perspective, we couldn't do if we if we didn't decide to sort of adopt that war framework. And, and I think it's, you know, I, I think it's it's genuinely a puzzling problem. You know, how do you make, we've got these categories, you know, war, peace, military, civilian, foreign, domestic, public, private, which today are harder and harder to apply in any coherent matter, in any coherent matter whatsoever. Uh, so it, it's easy to protect civilians when you know who the civilians are. When you have no idea how to define a civilian, you can't protect them. And, and, and you know, I think this really comes out in the uh, response to the Obama administration a few weeks ago finally releasing some information on civilian casualties resulting from U.S. drone strikes. Uh, and the Obama administration has said many times, we, we only strike, we only engage in these strikes when the likelihood of civilian casualties is near zero. And they released some data a few weeks ago saying that over, over seven or eight years, only about 150 civilians have been killed. And NGOs and journalistic groups immediately said, we think, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of civilians have been killed. And it all comes down to how do you define a civilian? Who gets to make that decision? 
Another part of the new definition of enemy combatants, if we define a person as an enemy combatant, we can kill them or we can take them to Gitmo. You worked on closing Gitmo. You visited Gitmo. And eventually you gave up on closing Gitmo. What what happened? I think the president gave up on closing Gitmo because he decided that the political capital he would have to spend and the price, the, the political price he would pay for closing it was too high. There, There isn't, in my opinion, there is no legal barrier to closing Gitmo. Congress has certainly not made things easier, but I don't think that Congress has the constitutional ability to prevent the president from closing it tomorrow if he chooses to. Uh, from whether he decides to transfer the detainees at Guantanamo now into U.S. facilities or whether he simply decides to let them go somewhere else. I don't think there's any legal barrier to closing it. It's, It's just a matter of political will, and the political will is not there. One last thing. You say that traveling to Gaza, Kosovo, Sierra Leone, and other places, the primary emotion that you felt was shame. Why shame? Oh, shame at being a comfortable American, shame at being an onlooker at other people's misery, shame at my inability to do anything that felt useful, you know, shame at the recognition that just by virtue of having been born American, that my life is made easier because other people's lives are are harder. It's, It's hard not to feel a sense of uh, shame for being so lucky when others aren't and shame that there's so little you can do. And I have one other question. The page in your book about the author says, Rosa Brooks is the daughter of left-wing anti-war activists and the wife of a U.S. Army Special Forces officer. Tell us who your parents are. <laughs> well, my mother is Barbara Ehrenreich. She's an author and well-known to many readers of the nation yes. uh, and listeners of your, your podcast. My father's name is John Ehrenreich, and he and my mother have in fact written together in the pages of the nation. They they uh, divorced when I was young, but they still uh, do occasional written work together. And what's it like for a Georgetown law professor to also be an army wife? <laughs> it has its odd moments. The uh, uh, culture on an American military base is quite different from the culture at American universities. Um, Nobody at George, nobody in my classes calls me ma'am, I can tell you that. <laughs> On the other hand, nobody also, nobody refers to me as a senior spouse. Uh, <laughs> or expects me to host uh, coffees and teas for other wives. Rosa Brooks, her new book is How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, Tales from the Pentagon. Rosa, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. We spoke with Rosa Brooks in August 2016. Her book is out now in paperback. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. That's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about the NFL's concussion calamity, the groundbreaking new study that showed brain damage from concussions in 110 out of the 111 brains of former NFL players who were tested. That's this week on Dave Zirin's new Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books, 
and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20.